Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, fighting stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org and there is a button for donations where you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. We so appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. We are all learning together. Thank you. We are excited to have as our guest today, Richard Sheffitz, who is a psychiatrist in private practice in Washington, D.C. He was president of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation from 2002 to 2003, and is a distinguished visiting lecturer at the William Allenson White Institute of Psychiatry, Psychoanalysis, and Psychology. He is a faculty member at the Washington School of Psychiatry, the Institute of Contemporary Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysts, and the Washington Center for Psychoanalysts. He is also the author of the book, Intensive Psychotherapy for Persistent Dissociative Processes, The Fear of Feeling Real. He's also the winner of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation Pierre Genet Writing Award in 2015. More information about his book and his related links are included on the blog. We do have a trigger warning we want to share for this episode in that Dr. Shafetz does use hypnosis in his practice. And because we get lots of questions about that from listeners, we asked him to explain a little bit about what that's like, and we do talk about it some in this episode. So just be aware of that. If it's a sensitive issue for you, you can skip that part of the podcast or go on to the next episode. As always, take care of yourself during and after listening to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's, it's a pleasure, Emma. I know you do good work. Oh, I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. If you want to go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is uh, Richard Sheffitz, and uh, I'm a psychiatrist uh, in private practice in Washington, D.C. I've been in practice as a psychiatrist since about uh, 1992. And before that, I was a family physician in rural Virginia, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and originally from New York. I'm a primarily a psychotherapist, even though I'm a psychiatrist, and uh, most mostly do uh, long-term psychotherapy informed by uh, hypnosis and EMDR and so on. My approach is mostly psychodynamic. And our listeners may know you already from seeing you on uh, many sides of Jane as well. 
Yes, that's, that's true. That was that was an interesting experience, and I've I've never met Jane. I got got I never talked with her, and I I did sort of get to meet her by watching. That is, it's such interesting dynamics trying to do the show, and I do know Jane, and she very much appreciated your comments and thought it was well done. Oh, good. I just wanted to help people connect dots for those who are still learning and connect names and, and the different experiences you had and sort of consults that you've done in a way of just yeah. consulting for the show a little bit. And I appreciated that they reached out to um, experts who knew what they were talking about as part of this show. Yeah. yeah pe people may wish to know that um, I've been for many years participating in the activities of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. Yes. And was a president in, I think, 2002 and three, And oh. I was also a co-director and administrative director for the Dissociative Disorders Psychotherapy Training Program, which was originally designed uh, with uh, Elizabeth Bowman, a psychiatrist uh, who was in practice for many years in Indianapolis, Indiana, and also a past president of ISSTD. And I was uh, with the uh, training program for about eight or nine years, and it's uh, still ongoing. And I think probably at this point has trained over 3,000 people. That's amazing. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, by the time I finished, we were at 2,000. It's been uh, a bunch of years since then. The program includes uh, modules now for children and adolescents as well as adults. And it's been very satisfying to see the program go on. And, and uh, some people uh, may wish to know that I've written a bunch of articles, which yes. a, lot of, a lot of people with my experience do. And, and then I wrote a book that was published in uh, 2015 uh, by Norton in their Interpersonal Neurobiology series. And the book is called Intensive Psychotherapy for Persistent Dissociative Processes, The Fear of Feeling Real. Wow. And uh, the book's been well received. And that, that's been a thrill for me. You, know, you never know what's going to happen when you write something, and whether it'll be accepted, valued or not. And uh, so as a 69-year-old uh, person, it's nice to have uh, something that I know will be around even after I'm not around. Part of your legacy. Yeah, yeah, which, which was a satisfying uh, thought. You've really contributed so much, and I'm so excited that we get to talk to you today. How did you start, I mean, where did you first learn about dissociation or how did you even get involved in all this? Well, you know, the, the, it, it, in a way it, it would be true, although it's an odd thing to say, dissociation got involved in me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and dissociative disorders got involved in me just by happenstance because uh, a lot of people have made a lot of contributions to this field and I was fortunate in being able to move from family practice to psychiatry at Shepherd Pratt in Baltimore, uh, where Richard Lowenstein had been uh, doing work with dissociative disorder uh, patients for a bunch of years. And uh, lo and behold, when I got on my uh, uh, first uh, unit, treatment unit, my first two patients had uh, dissociative identity disorder. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. I thought that was like rare. And then uh, my third patient had DID. Then I had a person 
to treat who was schizophrenic. And then my fifth, sixth, and seventh patients had DID. So it was sort of sink or swim. And I actually am very grateful, especially to my first two patients, who one of them confided in me after I had been uh, working with them for a couple of months. And I had been on call the night before. And, uh, and she said, I don't understand why you kept your appointment today with me. And I said, well, we had an appointment. And she said, well, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of the other residents, when they've been on call the night before and they're tired, they go home early. But you didn't. Why, why didn't you do that? I said, well, we had an appointment. And I, I won't die from being tired. And I know you're counting on me, so, you know, I'm here. And she said, well, uh, that's what I told my buddy. And she said, well, check it out. And if it's true, then let's help him. And that was the beginning of a tutorial of sorts and a very open treatment that uh, was wonderful. She was basically saying, okay, if you're going to make a commitment to really be on my side and really treat me, then I'm not going to throw up roadblocks and deflect the treatment. I'm going to join you. So it was, it was a wonderful year uh, of working with her. And I continued working with her after my year in the unit. And she was discharged. And I saw her as an outpatient for a bunch of years after that. What a profound gift of presence you gave. Well, I showed up. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. It can be hard to do. I mean, people who come to treatment are often terrified. And just showing up in the room is, uh, is an enormous victory. Um, and, and, you know, therapists get frightened also by the things they hear and have to tolerate that and continue to show up and to lean in and engage. And so it's challenging for everybody. It's, it's an intense experience, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there aren't really words to talk about the intensity. It's just... Uh, uh, I don't think there's anything else uh, like it. I'm not sure if anyone had tried to explain to me how intense it would be, I would have said, well, yeah, okay, maybe. But it's, it's, uh, it's really a profound experience and one that's deeply moving. How did you take that learning curve and learn more about DID all the way through your path of then becoming president of ISSTD? That's such a journey. Well, it, it is, you know, and I, it's uh, around uh, November or December of that first year, and that's the time of year now, uh, one of the other residents who was also what we called a retread because he had had a different career in his life. He was actually a couple of years older than I was. I was about 40 at the time, and he took me aside and he said, uh, Rich, I'm taking you out to lunch. I said, Wendell, that's ridiculous. I have too much work. I can't possibly go out to lunch. It's, it's, it's very kind of you, but I, I just can't do it. And he said to me in great seriousness, he said, no, you don't understand. I'm taking you out to lunch. You don't have a choice. You have to go to lunch with me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, uh, okay, that sounds serious. And it was then that he sat me down and said, look, if you keep on working as hard as you're working, you're going to burn out. I've seen that with other residents. You have to slow down. You know, you, you, have, you have to get your footing. And, uh, and I know you're taking this very seriously, but, you know, wake up. 
you, you can't uh, you can't keep up like this so you know he he woke me up to uh, the risks of becoming so absorbed in the work that uh, you might end up uh, really not being able to function well um, and so that was the beginning of learning how to pace myself which was a new concept and things kind of had a life of their own. I mean, you know, if you apply yourself and you read and you're reasonably articulate and not afraid to speak up, then you learn a whole lot. So I learned a lot. And, you know, I had great teachers, wonderful supervisors at Shepherd Pratt. Lowenstein was fabulous. My last year there, uh, there was illness in his family and he couldn't be at the hospital. So I did his consultations. Wow. Uh, and so I met... Uh, 50, 60, 70 people with dissociative disorders, some not, but I did a lot of consultations. And then he would come in at the end of the week and we'd review the consults. It was an incredible opportunity to learn. And uh, it was life-changing life for me. What a mentorship that must have been. Yeah, it was very cool. It was, it was very cool. And you, you, through your experience and these connections that just develop naturally through your career, there's this network of just now in hindsight, incredible people that I don't want forgotten. And I want people to understand how they're all connected together in brilliant ways, what they've done for this field and for survivors. And so I'm so glad you're talking to us. Thank you. Yeah, oh, you're very welcome. You know, people extend themselves when they see someone who's interested, and I try to do that for people new to the field now. One, you know, one of the things that happened toward the end of my first year at Shepherd, I started reading literature about the use of hypnosis in the treatment of DID, and I asked around, and no one at Shepherd did hypnosis clinically. So I... I forget who it was I talked with, but I learned that the current editor at that time of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, the American Journal of, of Clinical Hypnosis, was a psychiatrist down at the University of Maryland, downtown Baltimore. So I called him up and I made an appointment. And I went to see him and asked him to teach me how to do hypnosis. And I said, uh, so who do we practice on? And, and Thurman Mott, uh, Thurman looked at me and he said, well, We'll start with you, Rich. That's amazing. <laughs> I said, well, I can't be hypnotized. And he said, well, you know, let's let's see. Maybe maybe you can. You probably have some hypnotic capacity, so let's test that out. And then you'll have your own experience that you'll be able to understand your patients a little bit better. Uh, and about five minutes later, my hand was floating up in the air, and I was looking at it like it was about a half mile away. And I had my first hypnotic experience that was intentional. So hypnosis has been essential in my uh, practice, um, not for the things that people usually attribute, which is, uh, you know, searching through the past and so on, but more so for teaching people how to regulate thoughts and feelings, especially feelings. So I actually love this about your work, and, and I, I've seen you talk about this before, but before I ask you about that, let me back up to how do you describe dissociation or define it for people when you're working with them or even to other colleagues who maybe don't really understand it? Well, I, I um, sort of listen to my own drummer in that regard. My approach is a little bit different on a theoretical level. 
my my take Emma is that um, dissociative processes are like associative processes that that it's paired with association in the following way so like we we all understand that uh, to associate something is to connect it with something else and associative processes pull together things that are relevant and uh, then we make a coherent uh, story in our mind and then we create a narrative and we speak about it so we have an associative experience but it's also true that there are things we come across as we're trying to sort out reality that are not relevant to making something coherent it's just sort of the the trash that shows up uh, on the playing field or uh, uh, you know the notion of, of uh, wheat grains and chafe and so on you have to get rid of and prune the things that are not relevant to what's going on and that's that's a dissociative process that unplugs disconnects removes things from awareness that aren't necessary to provide salience so there are these two processes in tension and if you have associative processes working nicely in tandem with dissociative processes then you can sort through things and link them up and create a coherent narrative so that's that's when dissociative and associative processes are working properly but with experience that's overwhelming experience that outstrips our uh, ability to tolerate the emotional tension or the reality of something like um, the bombing of the Twin Towers in New York on 9-11 dissociation can go into overdrive and persist rather than just doing normal pruning and when that happens when dissociative process ramps up and especially when it persists then we start losing data that would be useful to understand what's going on the problem being that while it'd be useful it would also overwhelm us so dissociative process is merciful at the beginning when it saves us from the impact of a traumatic event but then it becomes a problem when it won't let go and continues to save us from trouble but depriving us of our ability to know what's real or even to feel real if the perceptions that are pruned have to do with being able to sense our own body to know what we feel uh, and so on so dissociation uh, then becomes a thief and uh, rather than it being a fortress where we can hunker down and just get through a trauma if it doesn't let go then the fortress becomes a prison and becomes a real problem so that's that's a different kind of view than uh, talking about dissociation as pathological uh, and uh, one of the things that happens with dissociative process is that when it persists and we have recurrent similar experiences then uh, we tend to anticipate experience along the lines of dissociative experience and uh, the normal organization of mind which Frank Putnam recently wrote about elegantly in talking about states of being in his, uh, his 2016 book called The Way We Are. Uh, states of, of being tend to organize and glom together uh, in the context of uh, lived experience. And um, 
they organize into aspects of self, self-states that uh, have enduring qualities. So those, those self-states become the focal point of uh, dissociative process when, uh, when there's been trauma. Can I ask a question about that? Sure. I, I know I'm interrupting, and I'm sorry. I don't want you to lose your train of thought, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. But as you're explaining that, I'm trying to keep that framework you said in the beginning about associating and dissociating. Right. And so when you're talking about these self-states, what came to my mind was if because of the dissociative processes happening and then these self-states developing is that part of like how those become more solidified because then the self-states are there and things get associated to them i think that's very astute emma i think that does happen it's speculative i mean all this is speculative because uh, we're not there when something's happening but we don't have the opportunity to really see these things emerge most of the time, and everybody has self-states, not just people with dissociative disorders. And that, that's one of the things that's very, very important about, at least for me, the way I think about a human mind is a human mind is a conglomerate, a collection of uh, self-states. And people who have a nice balance between associative and dissociative processes have a free flow of knowledge and feeling between one state and another and uh, can move from one context to another without difficulty and maintain their memory for what went on and have a full feeling life and so on. When there's dissociative process, the self-states become isolated and they, they wall off. They wall off. So, I mean, a typical thing that uh, someone experiences in DID is to uh, begin to come, become conscious for the presence of a self-state, but also to have a sense of, that, that's not me. I, I don't do things like that. I don't say things like that. I don't feel that way. I don't behave that way. That that's not me. And and so the the not me position uh, in reference to self states is pretty much typical of uh, identity alteration. So everyone has self states, and people with dissociative disorders have isolated self states, and uh, that's a blessing when there's trauma, and it's a kind of burden. Uh, sometimes a big burden when the trauma's stopped and we're trying to live our lives, but we don't have access to big chunks of our mind. You've given me a whole different framework to think about it. Well, there's a lot of different ways to think about dissociation. Yes. And, you know, much of the world thinks about dissociation simply as detachment. And there's another chunk of the theoretical world that thinks about it as compartmentalization. But, you know, uh, a French-Canadian colleague of mine once said in a conversation uh, we were having about uh, Freud's idea of ego, that ego sometimes refers to uh, organizing principle, and that sometimes Freud used ego to refer to a sense of self. And I said, yeah, we ought to figure out which way it is, and then just stick with that. And she said, that's the trouble with you Americans. You always want it one way or another. Why just can't you accept that sometimes things are both? <laughs> and I thought, okay, Louise, you got me. Um, but but the, the thing is that theoretically, we tend to become very fond of our own theories at the expense of other theories that have utility. 
And so there's a lot of different theories that have utility, and I use all of them when they fit. Uh, but I tend to um, lean on the things that I were, was explaining to you because um, it's just conversational sense. I mean, it just makes sense. And, and there's not a whole lot of theory language in what I was talking about. So I like, I like it a lot for that quality. I don't like technical terms when it comes to talking about being human. I, I think that's just one piece that's so fascinating is how the way that your perspective that you shared sort of normalizes it. But then also that piece that really got me was that associating piece because just at least for me, I've not been able to understand, like I can understand, okay, trauma was a hard piece and because of that there was this dissociating to deal with it, but then I don't understand how, like time is so fluid to me and my own head still, and so it's hard for me to understand how something that was supposed to be a long time ago can feel so present and how, quote, quote, someone who dealt with that piece can be so developed into something else. But when you when you at least gave me the language, if nothing else, the language to express that this piece, not even necessarily a part, but this piece of the past or whatever, even parts as well, became this and sort of evolved like this because that piece got associated and that piece got associated. It answers that for me somehow internally and bridges a gap that I didn't understand. But also, in the same way, it answers a question that I had about healing and about getting better because just undoing something in the past, which we can't change the past, but undoing the understanding or redoing the experience of it, like talking through it, isn't always what makes a difference sometimes what makes a difference is that connection, like the presence that you offered that first client that you shared about. Right. If that's part of what gets attached to that, and I don't mean attachment, but, but that associating, I don't even have words to express it well, but you've helped me understand something that I can't yet verbalize. Well, in, in your articulation of what you are understanding, you've uh, given me a gift because I've thought about something in regard to the fluidity of time that you mentioned that I haven't thought about before. And so I'll share that with you. Maybe it'll use, be useful to you. And here, here's the idea. You know, um, we have one head as human beings, but in some ways we have two or more brains. And uh, when it comes to cerebral cortex, and uh, most people know, I'm sure you do, that the right brain tends to do things that are uh, without a time and date stamp and have more to do with emotion and flow and music and dance and movement and stuff like that. And the left brain does things that are more logical, language-bound, mathematical, and time-related. So I was thinking as you were talking, does that have something to do with what Emma's saying? And so here, here's the thing that you gave me, I was thinking that time as a left brain thing is dangerous in the sense that it provides coherence about the sequence of events, some of which are traumatic. So if you get rid of time, then it's hard to know the sequence of things. And then anticipating what's going to happen next uh, sort of becomes not relevant. 
But in healing, one of the things that occurs is there's less confusion about threat. In other words, the dangerousness becomes located as something that occurred in the past rather than in the present. And when there's less fear, I think it's easier to have a sense of time because it's less threatening. Time provides a kind of coherence uh, that's unique, just like knowing feeling provides context and meaning for experience. Time helps to create a coherent narrative by creating a beginning, a middle, and an end. And without that, experience is less discernible. And that's of value if not knowing what happened is really important. But in healing, knowing what happened is very important. And so time slowly is restored as a quality that people experience as there's less fear in their mind and as they heal. And I haven't put it together quite in that way, although it's something that's not you know, astonishing. But saying it like that, I think, makes a lot of sense. I think it's brilliant. I, I mean, brilliant in, in like an authentic of the experience way. It's an authentic expression of the experience. Going back to what you were sharing earlier when you were talking about learning hypnosis and using it or utilizing it differently in trauma treatment or with dissociative patients, you were talking about using it with feelings. Do you mean like containment or, or what are you talking about there? Well, containment is a psychoanalytic term. Uh, there's containment and there's holding, uh, which are two terms that have to do with the frame of a treatment. And containment is about feelings and holding is about the sort of nuts and bolts of a treatment, like starting and stopping on time and providing proper billing and so on and so forth. And containment is a really big deal. Containment sometimes occurs by example, where the clinician is able to tolerate their feelings and it's sort of obvious to the patient as they're sitting with their therapist. Uh, and hypnosis uh, is a way to be absorbed in a given moment. Absorption is one of the qualities of the essence of hypnosis. And uh, being able to tune into feelings and tolerate feelings and know about feelings uh, is not easy. So yeah, hypnosis can be a tool uh, through which people can learn to contain their feelings and not be overwhelmed by them. If a survivor wanted to learn more about what hypnosis is like in a session, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, what, what I, I tend to joke about uh, hypnosis when I teach about it as an introduction. And uh, when, I, when I'm lecturing in a room full of people, like I was uh, a week or so ago up in Boston, I'll say, I, I wear glasses, okay? So I'll look around the room and I'll say, okay, look, you're wearing glasses, right? But you weren't aware you were wearing glasses until I mentioned that you're wearing glasses. But of course, you know you're wearing glasses. You wear glasses all the time, right? But where was your perception of your wearing glasses? Where did it go? And, uh, you know, that's both dissociative process, pruning perception, and hypnotic absorption in the sense that 
you're absorbed in focusing your attention on the speaker. And so your peripheral knowing about things that are of no consequence disappears. And a lot of hypnotic uh, quality is about absorbing and focusing attention. Some hypnosis is about having a wide open view of the world. Like uh, if, if it's okay to think about a beach, then a person sitting on a beach and feeling the sun's rays on their body, just warming their skin and looking at the little puffball clouds of white up in the sky and hearing the sound of the waves and, and all that kind of thing. And absorbing one's attention in that means that consciousness shifts because consciousness is not limitless. And we don't usually talk about consciousness and its limits, but consciousness has limits. It's like a tabletop. You can only put so much stuff on there. And if you start, if it starts getting crowded, then uh, things fall off the tabletop. They get lost. With hypnosis, the hypnotic metaphors occupy more and more space on the tabletop until there really isn't room for anything else. And that's that's part of, of how it works. It's the, the focused attention and absorption is uh, is a big part of hypnosis, yeah, just like suggestion is, uh, and post hypnotic suggestion. And, and these are things that are, are part of the essence of hypnosis that Martin Orne described back, I think, in the 1950s, maybe 58, 59, something like that. Mm-hmm. So hypno- hypnosis can be used to focus attention in a way that stops panic attacks. It's, it's, it's the best thing since sliced bread, Emma. If someone is fortunate enough to have a panic attack when they're sitting with me, and even in a first session, and I ask them, would you like me to help you stop your panic attack right now? And they say, well, yeah. And I say, well, okay, just do exactly what I say. And then I ask them to focus their attention. I hold my fingers up high above uh, their, their field of view. And then I will introduce them to hypnosis and their panic attack stops like on a dime. It's really cool. That's I, amazing. I didn't believe stuff like that when I heard about it at first, and then I did it, and it's like, oh, okay, that wasn't that hard. And um, then you can teach people self-hypnosis, and then they stop their panic attacks on their own. And what could be better than that? To have, you know, you, you come in for an hour, and you leave, and you've got a tool where you can stop your panic attacks. It's not that I don't do the... Uh, cognitive uh, therapy about educating about adrenaline and rapid heart rate and all that stuff but that's really secondary to their sense of empowerment because they have this cool tool that they can take with them and out of that kind of experience grows the capacity to um, dial perception down to create focused absorption in the service of reducing emotional reactivity when somebody gets upset and people can learn how to deal with insomnia using hypnosis. Uh, did you know that uh, hypnotic states uh, are states that are associated with increased immune competence? That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. In the treatment of HIV/AIDS, uh, killer T cell activity increases with hypnosis, and uh, and that's kind of cool. And uh, you can treat uh, warts. With hypnosis by increasing immune competence and warts just sort of fall off they just go away after a couple of weeks so 
That's crazy. Uh, well, I thought that was crazy. How could hypnosis you know, get rid of a wart? But by increasing immune competence, the warts kind of go away because they get established because they have a kind of beachhead uh, where the body doesn't realize they're kind of there. And uh, I thought that was nuts when I first heard it. How could that be possible? But it makes sense once you realize that you can influence uh, immune activity by using hypnosis. How would a clinician learn more about getting training for that? Well, there are three really uh, important uh, organizations. There's the International Society of Hypnosis, which is really worldwide. There's the uh, Society of Clinical Experimental Hypnosis, which also has uh, worldwide uh, membership. And in the U.S., there's the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. Um, I know in Australia, there are Australian societies of clinical hypnosis. Uh, and those organizations are thoughtful and pay attention to ethics properly. Uh, hypnosis is a medical tool. Uh, it should not be used uh, on a stage, you know, like stage hypnosis. In, in Britain, in England, in the U.K., uh, hypnosis is a medical procedure officially, and stage hypnosis is not allowed, which I think is terrific. That sounds yeah. really good. So any of those organizations uh, do trainings, and especially the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, uh, which I'm very fond of and a member of for many years, uh, has very organized, uh, systematic training and uh, um, hierarchy of learning uh, for people to become consultants and teachers and, and so on. And they have they all have websites, uh, so anybody can look up uh, uh, hypnosis training in their area, and uh, clinicians can learn. It's a, it's a three weekend thing really to get uh, people really up to speed, and uh, you can do that in a year. Plus, people who use hypnosis. Uh, as a rule and are willing to teach it are some of the nicest people I've ever met. So it, the weekends are generally a real pleasure. They're, they're a lot of fun. I have to say that I have been amazed at the response of this is not the hypnosis group, but with the ISSTD since sort of coming out to the ISSTD on on the listserv and um, the ISSTD one and the forums, I guess, and the kindness that people have shown and the respect that they've given this tiny little project that we're trying to do that's turned into such a big thing and our own healing process and just the welcome that we've received has been incredible. I was shocked. I was shocked. I had no idea that it would be such a positive experience. And you sharing about that group being so nice and authentic in that way, it that's what it reminds me of. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm with you 100%. I've been part of ISSTD since, like, I don't know, 1993, 4, or something like that, maybe earlier. And it is a group like that. Uh, people are tremendously caring. And, um, you know, you can't do this work alone, Emma. Yeah. Uh, there's so much that goes on that's so curious, odd, different, uh, overwhelming, exhausting, interesting, fascinating. 
and, and what, one mind isn't enough to be able to take all this stuff in. So you really need your colleagues to be able to talk about your experience and what's going on just to sort of remain uh, coherent yourself. True. Which reminds me, for clinicians listening, if you feel isolated, then, you know, find a group that you can be part of. But especially, uh, reach out to your colleagues and, uh, and meet uh, for peer consultation and supervision. I've been doing that in my office since 1998. And every month on a Wednesday for an hour and a half, a bunch of senior people in town come in and we sit down and talk. And it, it's marvelous. It's really sustaining. And it's, it's really important. What an opportunity for attunement for yourselves to have each other and to connect and have that support. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else about dissociation or DID that you would want to share or insights that you have? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one of the things I'd want to say for sure is that people can be helped. It, it's, it can be so confusing. And there can be so much misdiagnosis before someone finally uh, gets to the place where they understand they have a dissociative disorder. But but people can be helped. We have we have what we need uh, in terms of psychotherapy methods and uh, appreciation of how a mind is when it's been traumatized. Uh, and help is available. So that, I, I, you know if 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 there's any doubt in anybody's mind who's listening, then please put that aside. Uh, it's not easy, but people can be helped. So that's, I think that's, that's super important. And another thing that I think is, is super important is that uh, people often experience enormous uh, conflicts between uh, uh, different ways of being themselves. Uh, the language I use to talk about what other people call alters or parts or self-states, uh, it's all interchangeable. I like different ways of being you as a sort of uh, humanizing conversational way to talk about differences between different ways of being me or different ways of being you. And, and but people get in conflict between these different self-states and, and often the conflicts are, are, are really powerful and feel sometimes life-threatening and so on. But I want everyone to understand that those conflicts occur because of the desperation that exists in the service of efforts for self-protection, which sometimes go a bit awry. And uh, the intent for self-protection can sometimes create a sense of uh, using methods that are extreme, but always the interest is in, uh, is, is in self-protection, like uh, reducing emotional turmoil or reducing uh, or eliminating the occurrence of uh, somatic flashbacks, which are a big problem clinically that people have a terrible time with. So for people listening who have DID, and experience tremendous conflict inside. Remember that the the conflicts aren't uh, intending to um, to hurt. I mean, sometimes they do hurt, anyhow. But the the intention is to protect, and it's important to appreciate that. And and somebody listening may say, well, "Yeah, but I have this part of me who keeps on threatening me and 
telling me they're going to kill me and so on and so forth. And my clinical experience was the same for aspects of self, parts of self who uh, make those threats. Uh, the threats are really in the service of self-protection. And, and my job is to figure out what the logic is for that part of self that they're making those threats uh, and why they're doing it uh, and how, uh, how to understand where the protective aspect and nature of the threat comes from and why it's there in the first place. So those are a couple of things that come to mind immediately that I think are important uh, for people to know about uh, in general. They're a little bit different one from the other, but and one one other thing uh, that um, uh, dissociative disorders are in a lot of ways primarily a disorder of emotion regulation, and what happens to people when uh, uh, we're overwhelmed. We usually don't think of dissociative disorders as having to do with a failure, a failure of associative processes, but that happens. Do you know about uh, the theory behind assimilation and accommodation? So yes. assimilation is where uh, uh, you uh, just sort of take into your uh, thoughts and experience that you're having because it's, uh, it's a match for other experiences that you've had. So you can assimilate it easily into the things that seem like everyday experiences. And then there's accommodation, and that's where... Uh, you have an experience that's just sort of like pushing the envelope about what I can tolerate knowing about because that's it just feels like really on the edge. Trauma, uh, very much so, is where assimilation and accommodation fail. You can't associate your experience with something from the past, and it so outstrips and so strips your gears in trying to figure out how to understand what's going on that associative processes fail. And in a lot of ways, that's what kicks dissociative processes into overdrive. So that's an additional way of understanding what happens. And the assimilation and accommodation fail because of emotional overload, primarily fear but not always. Sometimes it's the terrible pain of profound shame or humiliation. But either way, it's emotional overload. So a focus on emotion and emotion-focused psychotherapy is very important in the treatment of DID. Cognitive therapies alone aren't adequate. And some CBT, which is third-wave CBT that pays attention to emotion, can be extremely helpful. And CBT in general can be helpful to a point. But CBT without any focus at all on the emotional life of a person is not going to be an adequate treatment alone for a dissociative disorder. We've really been going far and wide in our discussion. It's been very interesting. I'm going to have to listen and re-listen and re-listen to that last bit. There was so much in there that I had not at all put together with DID and or the dissociative process and again putting that framework with what you gave me at the beginning I really feel like I learned a lot and I'm gonna have to process that for a little while oh cool that that was really good so we'll continue talking about that on the podcast as as that kind of gets processed but I really appreciate it thank you so much oh it's my pleasure Emma and thank thank you for doing the work you're doing and 
you're really making a contribution to the lives of many people and uh, and that's great i i I am I'm grateful for people's positive reception and their support. I had no idea that this is what it was going to turn into and I I'm grateful that it has been something that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, well you have an inquiring mind and you're very articulate and um behind your questions uh is uh, is a lot of energy. And, and intellect so it's very cool being asked questions by you thank you well thank you so much you're welcome thank you sure thank you for your time today oh uh, you're welcome emma thank you it's a pleasure Thank you for joining us with System Speak, a podcast about dissociative identity disorder. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes, or follow along on our website, www.systemspeak.org. Thanks for listening.